Welcome to a new episode of Time to Shine. This is your host, Oscar Santolaya. Time to Shine presents you interviews with successful public speakers who share their experience and secrets with you in a weekly podcast. Hello and thank you for joining to this show today. Do you know what Pecha Kucha is? I didn't know until a few months ago, and the very first time that I watched a Pecha Kucha talk live was in front of our today's very special guest. Oscar Clark is a speaker and author with passion for games and online entertainment. Today, he is evangelist at Unity Technologies. Oscar is regular columnist with such sites as pocketgamer.biz and develop online. And he is often found speaking at countless gaming conferences around the world. Hello, Oscar. Hi there, Oscar. How are you doing? I'm very good. Then. <laughs> it's, good it's the two Oscar show. The two Oscar shows today. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Oscar, yeah, could I think you... Got my, you, you kind of got me uh, quite nailed there. Um, so I'm a game evangelist. And it's a, it's a funny term because mm-hmm. I still get people asking if it's about religion. Mm. And my answer is almost yes, of because course. my religion is games. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of a, a huge, hugely passionate. And I've been involved in the games industry for ooh, 17 years. But I suppose it really starts in 1984 when I had my Apple IIe and I had a couple of modem. I don't if you remember those. They were the things <laughs> that you just have rubber suckers you stick your phone into. Yes. And um, I was playing online games in 1984. Uh, long before there was such a thing as uh, oh. the World Wide Web, um, playing things called you know, uh, MUDs, um, in particular one called Shades, I remember distinctly. It was uh, a weird experience. In those days, the latency was so bad that I could type out, hit wizard with sword, and by the time I'd finished typing out whiz, I was dead. <laughs> it was, and why did I play these things? And I think it's because there's a sort of aspirational kind of possibility of worlds that you can encounter and engage in that games offers and it allows us to set ourselves apart from the everyday real world only in my case i decided i'd make it my real world as well (laughs) (laughs) so i work for unity as you say Uh, i also do a few things on the side i read a book called Mm. games as a service which is a very particular look at the kinds of production of gaming content particularly relevant to -to free-to-play games um, I'm quite outspoken about how free-to-play games is important, but also how it should be better than it currently is. Um, but I'm also, you know, I've got this fantastic privilege working at Unity because they let me investigate issues that developers face and talk about them. Mm-hmm. So I literally am, you know, all over the place. So a couple of months ago, I was in Boston. Um, I've been in, you know, Helsinki. I've been in Tel Aviv. I went to Kuala Lumpur last week. Wow. Uh, you know, really kind of exciting. I was in Moscow. I mean, you're in these crazy places. At the heart of it are these people who just love games and want to make games. Everywhere people love games. <laughs> everywhere, everywhere, literally everywhere. It's a, it's an amazing industry. And the fact is that you know, games is misunderstood because we actually there's more revenue in games than music mm. and movies combined. Oh. That's what people don't understand. You know, this is an amazing phenomenon. It actually taps into something really human. And uh, I get to speak about it. I didn't say my in your introduction that you are also 
a karaoke master or karaoke star, right? <laughs> so I, I saw you in a Pecha, Pecha Kucha talk, then I saw you in a karaoke performance. So I know you are a stage person. But tell us, how do you start speaking in public? Was always... Well, yeah, I mean, this is a good story. Well, a long, long old story. <laughs> Apparently, the first time I stood up in public was at my uncle's wedding when I was about five. <laughs> And I gave an impromptu speech <laughs> and no one knows why I did it. I don't remember any of it, but I'm told that I gave a coherent speech at the age of five. So I was kind of born to do this kind of stuff. Um, my first professional one, though, was actually in 92, I think. Mm -hmm. I just left college. I'd started my first serious job and I was doing uh, some, would you believe, software for recipes. Yeah, so basically um, the labeling that you'd see on the on your Mars bar or, or whatever other confectionery item, you'll see this ingredients list. We had software that would calculate what that would be. So you didn't have to sit there in labs and do experiments and see what the percentage of ingredients was. Um, so what was fascinating about that is that I had to give this um, lecture to the Royal Society of Chemistry. It's my first professional speaker event i was invited to speak at the royal society of chemistry amongst some of the biggest brains in chemistry and i had just failed my a level um uh, so badly i had an e you know this is a really bad so i failed my chemistry i was supposed to be good at it and i failed it um sitting there and i'm quite intimidated as you i'm sure you can imagine mm -hmm. but there's one thing i keep to my boss at the time said to me you know one thing they don't know You know how computers work, and you know how computers working can help their needs. Hmm. And that was the kind of magic thing for me. And, of course, I mean, obviously, I'm a, I do a lot of amateur dramatics, and I do like singing, although I, I'd like to point out to anyone who has heard me, I'm not pretending I'm any good. Uh, I have lots of passion, which makes up for lack of talent. But the thing is, you're sitting there, and this audience is in front of you, and they are probably 10 times smarter than you collectively there's no one in that room who couldn't outmatch your knowledge of chemistry but they don't know the thing that you know mm. how did we make this software calculate the information needed for the ingredients list and the magic thing was when you saw them on tenterhooks as we were telling them about the way software could help them and that's when I was kind of hooked into the process. And um, I did a lot of stuff, you know, we, we, I was a um, uh, real networks, which is a media playing company. It still exists as a company, but uh, it was really big at one, at one point around the sort of 1990,000 mark. And um, I was at Wireplay. I did all these kind of places where I managed to get in front of an audience and started talking about whatever it was I was working on. And again, the same rule came out. I knew one thing that the audience didn't know. Mm -hmm. and they wanted to find that out so once you kind of get that mindset i found speaking a lot easier <laughs> i'm sure wow what's a very interesting your your first experience yeah it's quite a scary one <laughs> <laughs> i mean you can't think of anything more intimidating than a bunch of academics can you you know probably the the, the most qualified chemists in the planet <laughs> <laughs> oscar and what about Pecha Kucha, could you tell us what it is? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, I mean, I try, I, like you say, we travel around all over the place. And I do all sorts of different types of talks, mm -hmm. um, moderating panels, hosting days. But 
the only one that's ever intimidated me, and you know, I, I'm someone who doesn't get sort of stage fright particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, I, I don't get stage fright, except with Petra Kucha. Oh. So Petra Kucha is terrifying. <laughs> and the reason is, is this. So you're given 20 slides. You can only have images on the slides. Mm-hmm. You can't have any text. And you don't get control when it moves forward. After 20 seconds, the slide moves on automatically. So think about that. So you're sitting there and you've got your notes and you want to make sure you're going to say all the things you've got to say for that slide. So you've got some bullet points or you've got some visual clue, a headline or something to remind you what you're supposed to be talking about at that point. With Petra Kucha, that's not there. You also have a button to click so you can continue talking until you finish your talk on that subject and then press the button to move on. And that's gone in Petra Kucha. It's like doing a tightrope exercise. Mm. You're sitting above, you know, the New York skyline, walking on a wire, hoping you get the timing right and you can make your points and you can complete your, your talk. So it's a completely terrifying experience. But at the same time, it's incredibly satisfying. It's probably more fun for the speaker than anyone else, which is unusual. Normally when you give talks, it's like, yeah, yeah I've given this talk three or four times or something similar to this talk three or four times. I don't think any talks should ever be the same each time. But anyway, um, but there's something about the camaraderie of the other people you you participate with, with these sorts, because it's so terrifying, because it takes a lot of effort. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I know my subject matter. So if I'm talking about games, there's very little that I couldn't just talk on off the fly, regardless. Um, you know, if you want to talk about game production, marketing, discovery, game mechanics, design, any of that kind of stuff, I can talk for a day, nonstop, and have... But when it's about providing a concise message that's punctuated and alliterated and delivered with joy and passion, Petra is amazing. Um, and the hardest thing is that you've got to rehearse it, which I don't do. You've got to have notes. You've got to plan it, which I generally don't like to do that much because I'm very much of an improviser. I mean, I like... And you know, like I said, I know my stuff. And when you know your stuff well enough, mm-hmm. then actually you can be more, you can communicate more effectively by talking about what how the audience responds to your comments, and that's a kind of very powerful kind of way of, of you know engaging with the audience where you can reciprocate with them. But with Petra Kuchu, you haven't got time for that. You've got twenty seconds, and this slide's gone. And if you want to make really good punchy points, you've got to know where that twenty seconds is coming mm-hmm. and be able to get your precise phrase at the right time uh, in fact actually there are a few cheats so um although there's no wording the image does change so because you create your own slides you're creating imagery and you try and get those images to make something sense to you lodge into your brain mm-hmm. and then you can change tack when the slide changes but it's really powerful when you can manage to say it just as the slide's going to change. Because then the slides automatically punctuate your words. Mm-hmm. So it's a terrifying experience. It's 20 slides in 20 seconds a slide. Uh, I've forgotten how many minutes that is, six minutes or something. So it's it's like a detailed elevator pitch, 
but at the same time it's like a tightrope walk emotionally <laughs> and the audience feels that as well so there's a certain entertainment value that comes from that which means that it's not a serious well i don't think it's a good f- format for serious communication of ideas but i do think it's an amazing format for communicating passion for kind of inspiring people and i think that's a really kind of really important lesson to remember is that realization that its purpose is about inspiration not necessarily about detail mm-hmm. probably worth me talking a bit about the history like you said we, we i i didn't know this but i had to check it out but i think it was first um devised in about 2003 in tokyo mm-hmm. uh, there's an architecture firm called um uh klein dytham uh, who basically decided that they wanted to invite other architects to have talks but didn't want them to prattle on for too long mm-hmm. and so it kind of forced this kind of social experience that by having this 20 slide 20 seconds slide it kind of forced the speakers and the and the participants to get much more engaged with each other and it turned out to be quite entertaining that format has been rolled out all over the place not just in architecture i mean where i came across it was i think you know the 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 event you were at the pocket gamer connects in helsinki now it was a second time we did it in helsinki we've done it in london as well we're about to do it again in london uh in january uh well let's hope so um and william tight from um uh, rovio rovio stars um was the one who brought it to pocket gamer and he managed to pull out a couple of he's a good friend of mine and we've got lots of our friends um and this is the important thing in this case we found a whole bunch of us who wanted to do it for the joy of doing it because we like speaking we wanted to do something that was going to change perspective do something outside our comfort zone and so a whole bunch of us got together and we you know through william and uh, william, and we basically sat down and try and work out what we're going to talk about and of course it becomes a bit of a game because i want to do a better talk than someone else and you know mm-hmm. uh you know we, i had um uh, a good friend of mine called mark sorrel who now works for william actually uh mark had this incredible talk uh, he's a, essentially a stand-up comedian i mean he's he's a um a behavioral economist who happens to have the timing and kind of um some wordsmith nature that means he could happily stand on in fact i think he has actually done stand-up and so i'm having to follow him and he's making this kind of crazy joke chain throughout the slides and these slides are always funny but the, he's made this comment about you've got to teach a fish to fish and it's the old the old comment about you got to you got you you don't give a man a fish you teach a man to fish mm-hmm. but he's made he's he's deliberately got it wrong for the whole of this and he kind of has this fantastic punchline I forgot what the punchline is by the way but then it's probably a good thing I don't say it because I don't spoil it if you ever see the video and then he he says right that's me done I got forty eight seconds left <laughs> what what and he sits there and he stands and he looks at the audience with a kind of kind of incredible sneer and i'm having to follow him so you can imagine what it's like when you know this thing is a tightrope walk as it is mark has completely ignored the rules but in (laughs) such a funny way that everyone's absolutely in hysterics and you're up next (laughs) so i have to get up on stage and the only way out of it is to swear at him and tell him how much i hate him um and funny enough that seemed to get the audience back on on my side um but this is the thing this is the dynamic it's about the relationship competitive it's almost like dueling 
it's like speaker dueling. Um, so it's a fantastic experience. I, I thoroughly recommend it. And, you know, the, these kind of nights that they do in the architectural kind of world, and I hope they do it elsewhere as well, um, are incredibly social, incredibly exciting to be part of. And like I say, in, in the gaming scene, Pocket Gamer has had this Petrocutra experience now for three three of its uh, events. And um, I think there's a whole bunch of videos from the Helsinki one. I think you you saw me doing my talk about hand yes, shot first. Yes. They're in yeah. YouTube already. Yeah, yeah. They're on <laughs> yeah, unfortunately with my one, because I was the first one up, they only caught the last third of the talk, which is a bit of a shame. Um, because the whole point of what I was trying to do was to... Um, so I, I blatantly cheated. So this like I say, you're supposed to have 20 still images mm -hmm. with no text. I had 20 animated GIFs, <laughs> all taken from Star Wars, and a couple of them actually had a few words. So they were, they were actually subtitled, so it wasn't entirely... I didn't put any words on them, and there were bullet points. Um, so I wasn't entirely cheating, but you're not really supposed to have animated images. <laughs> um, and, the, and the thing was, I was using this as a metaphor... Uh, to describe the life of an indie gamer and the skills that are important to an indie game developer. Because if you want to be successful, I think there's a lot of qualities around the kind of whole idea of of, of the independent smuggler that, that Han Solo starts out on and the journey he goes through when he becomes the guy who comes in at the end to save the day. Because um, I don't think Luke saves the day, but I won't bore you about that. Um, the, the, the point about that is it's combining a shared common experience of almost everyone in the room. We've all seen Star Wars. Mm -hmm. About a third of that audience have an elite level of knowledge. They understand what I mean when I say hand shot first. Yeah. This is a kind of concept called social identity theory. It allows me to separate the audience into two groups. The ones who are in the in crowd, who are my fan base, effectively, I mean, they're not my fan base, but they kind of they belong to the same group as me. They understand that in the original version of the film, Han Solo shoots Greba in the cantina first. In the special edition that was brought in in 97, uh, Lucas changed it. I think it was 97. Lucas changed it so that Greba shoots. Now, why am I going on about this? Because actually, this is part of the psychology of, of how we communicate. If we have a group of people who are already on the in-group and they know they identify as being the people who share this common law, this common uh, obscure knowledge, and that that's a secret that is separate from other people, they feel more bonded instinctively. And then when you feel outside that group, there's a desire to want to find out what it is mm -hmm. that this group knows that you don't know. And so you're creating a dynamic in the audience by doing this talk. At the same time, They're all game developers, well, almost. Probably about two-thirds of them are game developers. About a third of them are people who sell things to game developers. So, again, I've got this group dynamic where I've got people on the inside and the outside, all within the in audience. And what I'm doing is something which is shared for everyone in the room, which is talking about the process of making games. But I'm doing it in code. And I'm doing it in a code that's shared, but not always shared by everybody. Mm -hmm. And that It's what helps me keep the attention of the audience. It allows me to punctuate mm. key phrases. It allows me to alter my tonality and the pace that I talk in and to get louder and quieter. Being able to be quieter sometimes to then punctuate, to get louder and then make this point and stress it and stress it and stress it. This kind of stuff actually is as much part of the process of, of speaking in general. If you want to learn about being an effective presenter, 
you've got to learn a lot of lessons. I think a lot of the lessons that I'm talking about in the in that particular talk become possible because of the Petri Cucci format. You know, they sort of amplify that format, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. You already have told us your what Pecha Cucha is, your experience, and also some of your secrets, how you have it done it. Uh, could you tell us, for someone who wants to do it uh, for the first time from scratch, what do I need if I want to deliver one, prepare one, and organize? Yeah. So I, it took me a long time to get my head around how to do it. Um, and I think everyone's got their own different format. For me, what I think I did was... I decided a theme, a topic to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. I'm actually going to be using, for the next one, I'm going to try and use the Rocky Horror Show as my theme. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to use it to try and talk about the kind of uh, the state of the market uh, in games. In, in the Rocky Horror Show, there's a cycle between kind of um, the kind of the star character, the, the Frankenfurter, he's dr driven to create, but his creation is an excess. And as a result, everything goes to pot. And, uh, and you know, the argument in, in the games industry is that we've had these amazing kind of successes and this, dr this drive towards creating these monolithic kind of experiences. And arguably the, the industry is going to hit a decline. Um, and that's kind of the metaphor I'm kind of going for. Now I've, that's a metaphor I've chosen. Now I'm going to break that metaphor down into 20 steps. And again, what mm. I tend to do is I tend to search out the iconic imagery. Um, often, I mean, I'm a bit naughty. I do tend to do it on Google searches and put an attribution, you know, so the, the URL of where I got the image, um, which is not entirely appropriate sometimes, but I do, because it's limited audiences generally, I, I kind of... Um, take a little bit of liberty but i would generally suggest find you know copyright free imagery mm. and obviously always credit people sure, when sure. you use their imagery um but you want iconic statement recognizable statement images mm. but the hard part is that you also want it to feel like it's in a consistent style so you're looking for either contrasting or consistent color schemes So you can alternate between them to create points where you recognize the imagery has changed. Um, so that's a really important thing. It, iconic because you want the audience to get it straight away, but also so that you recognize where you are in the flow. And at first, I don't worry too much about what images go where. I just try and collect, say, 30, 40 images. Mm -hmm. So more than I need. Having done that, I've got, I've now got, a theme and a set of images. I'm now going to try and create the kind of bullet points of what I'm going to talk about. And there I try and come up with one sentence. If you think about it for one sentence per slide, um, like a title, if you like, like a McKinsey title that you talked about that with um, yeah. another one of your, your, your speakers. Uh, so this idea of an informative action style statement, it's quite useful Because it means that if you, if every slide in your head has had, had one mm -hmm. statement, then you know what you can talk about. Now, because I'm an improviser at heart, I don't tend to be as good with planned written scripts as I am kind of in, off, the, off the cuff. Um, so I don't tend to rehearse it that much, but I do check my timing. So I'll go through it one time and I will check the timing of, as I go through the slides and I will talk around the subject of that phrase that I came up with for each slide 
and make sure that I can fit it in to 20 seconds and no more. Mm-hmm. And how, how many how many times you practice until it fits in the 20, you feel comfortable? Well, I'm not a good example because I'm <laughs> such an improviser and I've got so much kind of background knowledge of my own subject. Uh, if I was a new person starting, mm-hmm. I think the first time I, I, I rehearsed it three times, but I would mm-hmm. generally say do a lot more rehearsal than that unless you're because you know think about this i probably speak at 30 events a year mm. every year and have done for the last five years you know so that's an awful lot of experience i've already got under my belt and that's on top of you know a career when i was doing you know speeches internally and externally probably 20 times a year anyway so you know i'm an extremely experienced speaker so the kind of level of of rehearsal i need is going to be the same as somebody who's just out of college and um, i don't tend to do that against an audience uh, but it's absolutely brilliant when you can um, and i would recommend if you were a new you know relatively new speaking you want to find somebody who is a good friend who understands how to caveat their responses but blunt enough to tell you when you're doing something rubbish. Mm. <laughs> and they're really hard they, these are the best friends you can have they're really hard to find but if you can find one then brilliant i have a few colleagues who are a bit like that um but the trouble is you've got to filter out between their response to you and what you want to say because anyone responding to you with feedback is going to tell you the talk they would give mm, yes. they're not going to be able to tell you the talk you should give. exactly so it's really difficult to know when to accept or reject feedback but I mean, at the very least, you want to get your timing right. So yeah, sit there, mm-hmm. set it up, practice, run it through three or four times. And if you're comfortable with that, then you should be okay. But like I say, I'm experienced and maybe I'm being a bit optimistic. For <laughs> most people, you probably want to do it a bit more than that. Yeah, of course. I, I guess you have a lot of this improvisation skills so that makes your preparation shorter. But you said, one thing I believe is that if you have a a friend in front of you for the, for practicing, at least he or she gets, no, gets the biggest part of the idea, right? If it's completely confused, oh. Oh, exactly. But actually what you're looking for is those subtle things they don't tell you. Um, Mm. I mean, one of the things about improvising uh, kind of talks, I mean, again, don't get me wrong, I do a lot of research as well. I mean, a lot of the talks I do more recently are when I when I create a webinar, for example, mm-hmm. I will spend a lot of time making sure I've got the latest information of course. and, you know, really kind of got to, under the bones of what, what's going on. So it's not that I don't research, it's just I don't practice the talks. Mm-hmm. And the sure. reason I don't practice the talks is because I need that dynamic between me and the audience where I can see when they're waning or not and then punch them or, or, or withdraw accordingly because I want to see how they're, and I want to see their emotional state stagger. I want it to rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. If it's static, I'm not going to get the impact from them. And I don't want to lose that emotional energy by becoming bored of my own talk. If that makes sense. So that's why I think it's important to check. And when you're dealing with this other person in the room, what we're looking for is the dynamic between you and mm-hmm. them and seeing how you can use the tonality of, 
of your talk to work with them to keep their response. And if, if they don't get your jokes, then you probably miss the, the mark anyway. If they don't understand the points, then clearly you've missed the mark as well. So it's a difficult balance between getting enough practice and the right kind of practice mm-hmm. with um, killing the energy of the talk. Sure. In this, in this preparation, in this practice, you need not only to, to listen, to really observe everything, right? The, how they, how they say, how they give the feedback and their, yeah, their expression, their body language and their reactions, as you said. Exactly. Well, I think the crux there is actually, it's the realization that you giving a talk is actually almost the sort of easy part. The reality is that you're not just giving a talk, you're c- trying to communicate to an audience. And to communicate to an audience, you have to understand that their needs come first, mm. which is something I often forget. <laughs> Not intentionally. But it's, I mean, it's a constant reminder. I have to constantly remind myself, why do they care? Mm. Why should that audience care? And in some ways, I'm a bit too critical because things that I don't think they care about anymore, it turns out they do. Particularly, um, so one of the one of the rules I kind of love to kind of live by is you don't sell from the stage. Mm-hmm. Anytime someone tries to sell from the stage, you lose sales. I get people. So I did a talk in all, all sorts of places. I do these talks, but in particular, Kuala um, Lumpur recently, um, I did this talk about how free to play games can make better games. Uh, I had a whole bunch of arguments why things about free to play design can actually help improve the gaming experience. And the question I got was about ads. I didn't have hardly any. I mean, there's a couple of line, lines about ads. And obviously, uh, the, the part of Unity I work for is the Unity ad side. And the first and primary question was about how do we use ads better? And that, for me, is magic. And that happened because I told them something that they valued as an audience. And I left the space for them to fill in the desire to want to talk about ads. Mm. And that's really the crux of it. it. You know, again, it's understanding the audience, what they want from it, and then giving them the space to act. Hmm. Yeah, another excellent example. Oscar, could you now tell us what is your favorite quotation? So I, I'm struggling with this one a little bit. I'm going to give you one that's not particularly relevant, but I'll explain why it's relevant. And I'm going to give you one that's that's slightly more, you know, probably poignant. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire on the shoulder of Orion. I've got sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. That's the kind of famous Rutger Hauer quote from Blade, um, uh, Blade Runner. Why do I? Why do I like it? And I think I think it absolutely sums up what games are about. What we as a collective audience love about playing games. We get to experience things that no one else can understand because we've been able, I mean, obviously we can all have this experience, but the experience is ours. It's personal. And those moments will be lost. You know, and and as a speaker, the reason why I think this is is important is we're trying to create an image, an identity, a world, and we're trying to communicate And if we're not careful, we don't communicate that in a way that's emotional, mm-hmm. those moments will be lost. And that's kind of, that's why I love that quote. Um, but there are, there are the other ones I want, I, I couldn't decide about, I'll, I'll chuck at you. Um, is Albert Einstein quote, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. 
And I think that's again a really poignant thing because it's the yes, of course, we should reduce and reduce and reduce, mm. not beyond the point where it mm. works. And there's a response to that which Groucho Marx gave, which I think is also brilliant. A child of five can understand this. Send someone to fetch a child of five. Again? I just love that. So a child of five could understand this. Send a ch- send someone to fetch a child of five because I can't understand this. <laughs> the, the, the point of the joke, I probably told it badly, but the point of the joke is this stuff is so simple a child of five can understand it, but I don't understand it, so I'm going to go get a child of five to show it and explain it to me. <laughs> we can often get confused. And in fact, I use perfect example. Because some of these messages are so relevant to us, when we try to communicate them to other people, it makes no sense. So again, it's simplicity, but it's also knowing what is simple to me is not simple to you. So anyway, there you go. There's a bunch of quotes for you. Yes, well said. Could you now recommend us one book that for you has been particularly influential or inspiring? Uh, you know, I find this really difficult because I don't read as much in terms of the books as I used to. Mm-hmm um the one though that so i'm I'm torn between a professional book so there's a book um uh, called crossing the chasm which is all about Mm -hmm. kind of marketing theory which is brilliant but it's not relevant to talking the one i think is most relevant to talking is influence the psychology of persuasion which Mm -hmm. is by robert uh, caldini yes um i just think that's a great way of getting you to think there are a few parts of the book where i kind of get a bit oh that's a bit too kind of manipulative and then i realize actually when you go underneath it he's actually a He's demonstrating that generally um, these things are just normal parts of behavior. And as long as we understand what, what's normal part of behavior, we uh, are realizing that manipulation is not uh, a, a weird, obscure, evil thing. It's just what we do when we try to convince people of an argument. And understanding the mechanics of how we behave as human beings is incredibly fascinating. Uh, so much so that I want to write a book about psychology with a friend of mine uh, who is a psychologist. Uh, looking at the psychology of game design. But um, anyway, so Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion, which is available on Collins, uh, Robert Gardini. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, it just looks at all sorts of things like reciprocation. Yeah. You know, why we have to, when we ask a poll question of an audience, we put our hand up so that they respond to us. Um, social proof. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is the whole thing about me wanting to have these these groups that understand different aspects of what I'm talking about. Um, likable authority you know it's why i stand up with a stupid hat and uh, kind of make sure i'm always wearing a black jacket so that you <laughs> i have this sense that i must be someone important i'm not but i you kind are. of create this illusion <laughs> well i create an illusion clearly the illusion's working i just think you know, like looking at the hot cold empathy gap why when you're emotionally engaged in a conversation your decision making process changes so um you know, when you are hot and you're kind of angry or emotional or passionate, you're probably more likely to make a purchase or act, make a decision mm-hmm. based on the attractiveness or the likability of the person. But when you're not emotionally engaged, you're going to probably make the decision based on hard, cold nosed facts. Mm-hmm. Things like that are really important. So, over social identity, we talked all about that. But anyway, there's Influence, great book, well worth checking out. Yeah, excellent. Great, uh, great book, definitely. And you're, you're saying I'm an exercise, and, um, which I think is the last bit. Yes, that right? routine to shine. Routine to shine. I'm not really one for routines. I'm going to chuck a couple of things that I've learned mm-hmm. that I think help. Um, 
and one of them is from rhetoric um so uh, churchill talked about this a lot and he uses it all, an awful lot and it's about the power of three mm-hmm. repeat and repeat and repeat and try to repeat your terms so they escalate so that when you repeat it again it seems more important and when you mm-hmm. repeat it again again it seems more important still exactly and that kind of repetition is incredibly powerful but I think it's also worth learning a little bit from grunge music and particularly Nirvana. Because uh-huh. when you go quiet, you can capture the audience's attention. And then by going loud, you then ram the point home. And knowing how to change the pace and the emotional cadence, you actually get the audience's attention. You keep their attention throughout the talk. So they're probably kind of the two that are probably the most interesting, you know, um, you know, get a hat, <laughs> you know, my, my junior top hat yeah. is so, <laughs> so famous now. It's, but, it's but so different ridiculous. from yours. So nobody will come. No, yeah. No one, no one's allowed a junior top hat, you know, just, um, you know, but getting something that creates a visible, recognizable outline mm. and then being seen everywhere. Yeah. Eventually, for some reason, people think you're important. Yeah. Also like charge you'll have with a, with a cigar, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, he had a cigar and he also had a one-piece. He used to wear a onesie before they were famous. It was like a boiler suit. It was very odd. Um, when I, I'm not a big fan of Churchill in many ways, but there are a few things that are interesting about him. Um, you know, there's, yeah, like I say, the, the onesie, it, it, will, it will never be forgotten. Um, but uh, his use of rhetoric is very, very clutch clever mm, sure. um and it's it's kind of odd thinking about how important rhetoric which is obviously an ancient kind of mm. way of speaking still has poignancy today absolutely thank you very much oscar for this fantastic interview you show a lot your passion about games about being uh, on the stage and give us this uh, piece of advice about pecha kucha very very useful. I'm already thinking when I'm going to have my very first Pecha Kucha talk. So I, you already inspire me. <laughs> give it a go. Give it a go. It's, it's, yes. it's a magical thing to do. It's like tote walking and you'll never turn back. You'll want to do it again. <laughs> even, even though you say it's terrifying. Terrifying. In a good way. <laughs> Oscar, could you finally tell us how we can learn more about you, follow you? What are the best ways? Yeah. So I, I'm Googleable. If you just look up Oscar Clark, there's no Ian Clark. Uh, or you can look at my um, uh, Twitter feed. Uh, I have the curious hashtag of Athanasius, which is at A-T-H-A-N-A-T-E-U-S. Um, you can probably best find me if you look up blogs Unity mm-hmm. Oscar Clark, sure. because you'll find a whole bunch of my blog posts up on the Unity blog site. Oh, and I do a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, for example... Look me up on Amazon, and the book is called Games as a Service, How Free-to-Play Design Can Make Better Games. It's from Focal Press. Thank you very much, Oscar, and all the best. Great. My pleasure. It's been great fun. Dear listeners of Time to Shine, this is the end of today's episode. If you like our show, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or for more information, visit our website, www.timetoshinepodcast.com Welcome to listen to us again next week.